Bienvenidos a Estoy Aquí. We are your hosts, Catherine Borgen and Catherine Castro. Quereras de Cultura and Justicia, bringing your bi-weekly dose of spice. Hey B, what's good? Girl, the sun is shining. It's finally springtime and I feel like myself again. <laughs> Girl, you can say that twice. Sun's out, buns out. Yes. <laughs> I am really excited about this episode. Bro, we say that about every episode. Yeah, because we got some really interesting friends doing interesting things. Girl, you're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Gotta represent. But for this episode, we interview Yasli Crontreras, an international education specialist with experience working mostly in Latin America and the Caribbean, and Jocelyn Contreras, a dual language public school teacher in Washington, D.C. We decided to make this episode in order to shed light to issues of Latinx representation and access to quality and culturally relevant education. We just touched the tip of the iceberg, but we think it's important to get these conversations started. We feel extremely lucky to get insight from two education practitioners who really put things into perspective from both a domestic and international framework. Bueno, so let's get real. We've mentioned several times in our previous episodes, including the first and second generation, extra with the purpose episodes, the fact that the Latinx community really understands and values the importance and impact of higher education. Unfortunately, in the United States, Hispanic students must navigate an educational system that does not fully serve their needs. Girl, you preach that and say that one more time. (laughs) Hispanic students have underperformed in schools compared to their white peers, both in terms of high school graduation rates and test scores. Some factors that impact these rates include not only coming from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, but restrictive learning environments at school. And a lot of us face an English language barrier. I mean, myself growing up, I started school with Esau. Dude, and how did that kind of, how do you feel that changed or impacted your learning? Well, I mean, the first few years of school, I was separated from my peers. And instead of learning fundamental subjects like math or science i was in a classroom again secluded from my peers with other students that only spoke spanish as well learning english so i feel like i got i missed out on a lot you know this really goes to further confirm the gaps that are painfully evident when you look across differences in math and reading testing scores and even graduation rates I think a bigger issue to consider also is residential segregation and how that impacts the funding of public school districts. It causes a disparity in educational opportunity because it creates higher income communities with predominantly white school districts that have more local tax revenue for their schools compared to fewer dollars, fewer money and resources for school districts in low income minority neighborhoods. So public school funding inequities really leave some schools with well-equipped classrooms while leaving others behind. I mean, to touch back on that, like we've mentioned this in a previous episode, I think, but my parents had to lie about my school district. They changed my address completely just so I can get an equal opportunity. Yeah, dude. I know. But what's really crazy is the Hispanic population is the nation's largest, youngest and fastest growing minority population. As it continues to grow, it's important Hispanics have access to high quality and, and culturally relevant education. Study after study has shown that the quality of a student's teacher is the single most influential in-school factor in academic achievement and future life outcomes. 
with the increase of Hispanic population, it's important to have a teaching workforce that reflects its students in order to meet this population's unique demands. Dude, totally. Get this. Hispanics make up about one quarter of all K-12 students, but under 10% of all teachers are Hispanic. Wait, what? Yes, there's a huge disparity in representation in the United States public education system. All right, let's face it. Truth is, we live in societies where income is directly correlated with access to quality education and opportunities. Latino students in the U.S. are showing way different educational outcomes than their white peers and are facing inequitable opportunities that ultimately lead to inequitable lifelong incomes. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Latin America and the Caribbean, the region has made significant strides over the last two decades in increasing the access to primary and secondary education. But still, the majority of children in the region are not receiving high-quality and relevant education. This means that the youth are entering the labor force, lack the skills necessary to find work and participate in a global economy. At the same time, employers can't find enough qualified people to fill open positions. This mismatch is suppressing economic growth and perpetuating a system of haves and have-nots. In Latin America, the education gap mirrors the income gap between the rich and the poor. All right, all right. Let's let the experts do the talking and let's dive into this a little further. Just a heads up to everyone listening, we refer to Latin America and the Caribbean as lack in this episode. I am Jocelyn Contreras. I am a first grade dual language educator. I teach math and Spanish and Spanish language arts. Hello, I'm Yesli Contreras. I'm a project manager for a nonprofit organization here in Washington, D.C., managing international development projects, specifically in the LAC region. Any interesting project, projects you both have been working on lately? Recently, our panorama survey has come out at my school, so we're just looking to get back the results to see, like, what we're doing well for social-emotional social learning for our students um, to see. Because both uh, ed, the educators at my school and the students get surveyed. So we're trying to see, like, it, what have we been doing this year? If it's been working, um, what can we do to improve for next year? So I'm working on that. I guess one interesting thing is that we are in the process. Um, we're working with two different universities in the Central American region. Um, one of them is in Costa Rica and the other one is in Guatemala. And we are in the process of designing an early grade literacy master's program that focuses on um, uh, research specifically, just because there's not a lot of students or graduate students who come out and graduate knowing how to actually conduct research. And there's very little of what evidence says in the Central America region when it comes to early grade literacy. Mm -hmm. So we're creating capacity building, and we thought that through this master program, it will stay in the region and continue to be used with the future generation of uh, this experts in, in Central America. Yeah, is there a reason why that research-based focus doesn't exist in Central America? I would say the, the capacity building it hasn't been there. Um, a lot of the focus, and, and even not only in Central America, but in developing countries uh, when it comes to education, has been access but not the, the quality of it, right, that comes of it. So when I mean when I'm referring to access is making sure that the students go to, to school and that the schools are there, right, and that the teachers have 
a classroom to to teach in whatever setting it is, but not focusing on the quality. So the evaluation hasn't been there if these kids are actually learning to read and write at the right level. So so now Central America is is doing fine and compared to other regions when it comes to access. But what about the quality, right? I think our big aim is, that's what we call, at least when I was doing my studies, teacher-centered work. Like, you can talk down, you kind of like make them, like, they're sponges, so they just soak up the information and that's it. But my philosophy and how my passion for teaching and how I was taught was student-centered. We we as educators adhere to what students' needs are, and we teach them that way, Um, specifically through small group work, but it really depends on how much uh, access to funds we have, Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm able to do that, uh, because I have 38 students, and sometimes, and I see... So, basically, we have A days and B days, Uh, where I teach math every day, but I only teach Spanish to one group of kids like two to three times a week. Mm. Um, And it's supposed to be a 50... Their day is 50% in English, 50% in Spanish. If I had more help, if if the school had more access to funds to have more like student or more helpers in the classroom or another teacher so that we could do the co-teaching model, then I feel like they'd have more access to that Mm. um, so that we could adhere to more student-centered work, but I'm kind of on my own. It sounds like the kind of um, quality of education really just is contingent on money. Yeah. I think if I had another body in the room to take a small group while I was taking another small group, that would help um, very much so. And even in my... I have my partner teacher who teaches in English, and she says the same thing. She does. We... The first grade year is essentially our students have to grow... uh, eight levels in one year and that's a lot that's like the 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 highest amount of levels that they have to jump and we're the only grade at least in my school with no help from any like no um educational aids or assistance yeah and is the school very well aware of that Yes, and the and the crazy thing to me is that we we have like a lot of funding when it co- compared to most schools in DC. So we have like the most funding, and yet we're still like underwhelmed with like funds. I just don't think that um, bilingual schools are priority. Actually, that ain't that bad. We really aren't a priority. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, just facts. It's just facts. I mean, there's only pro- there's only eight of us. Eight schools in DC. There's not that many. <laughs> But that's the point. There's not yeah. that many, so we're not a priority. And it's especially hard to, like, find, like, people who speak Spanish and then can teach in Spanish. Um, it's one one thing. It's already hard to find people who want to teach, and then it's another mm-hmm. thing to find someone who can teach in Spanish. Um, I know that was one of my biggest, like, dilemmas in finding a job because I'm considered first generation, um, but my first language was English. Mm-hmm. So I didn't. I wasn't formally taught Spanish until college so coming in they needed me as a Spanish teacher and I kind of fell into place and fell in love with it I remember telling Yesley that I was scared to do it I wasn't sure I was I didn't know if I could do it but she was one of the main ones who could say like you can do it like just because you didn't like learn it like for offhand like in El Salvador like she did it but you know like, <laughs> like you know like you can it. I really did learn Spanish through novellas like
So can you talk a little bit about the bilingual schools just because I'm completely unfamiliar about that model. Like growing right. up in Miami, surprisingly we didn't have that. Right. So wow, that's crazy. I feel like they have a much higher population of like Latinos. Yeah. Um all right, so the model is different across every school, but at least for my school, like I said, it's 50% in English and 50% in Spanish. So my students will start off the day in my class learning math in Spanish. So it's not the traditional, like, two plus six is eight. It'll be, que es dos más que seis, you know? And then they, we, we learn um, restar, sumar, we learn everything. And what helps is... Um, the bridging model as well so even though this is what kind of confuses people so even though I teach math and Spanish my students are still tested in English so I'm expected to do the bridging model which is basically we have a lot of cognates in Spanish and English that are are you familiar with cognates are like they're like the words that like sound that sound the same in English and Spanish so sumar to some okay yeah, yeah. so I'm expected to to kind of do the bridging model like that helps students like if they see that word they can kind of like put it in their head like oh Miss Contreras showed me that in Spanish but that's similar and exactly English as well and I can I can add just the same like because math is universal so but that's something that I don't agree with my school, and I've been very vocal about it, so that's fine. Um, that even though I teach math in Spanish, we still use the bridging model. But that doesn't really help with with um, with their language development. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it helps with their their math or their mathematical development and everything. But they only receive Spanish an hour and thirty minutes every other day, mm-hmm. and we have breaks. We have days off. We have, you know, so, like, my kids don't get Spanish as much. We get it in math, but you can't really have, like, lively... I mean, you can have lively discussions um, and mathematical discourse, but in general, like, can my kids really, like, hold a discussion about a movie in math? Like, I, like, admire them because they're a bilingual school, but there's just so many things, like... And I think that's, like, across all, like, bilingual schools, there's always something that can be improved on, but, like, we emphasize on language objectives and you know, um, the standard objectives, like to adhere to whatever the common core is, but we don't really emphasize on the cultural ones. Mm-hmm. So if we're, if I'm teaching about, um, like we just finished a, mo- uh, a unit on airplanes and we didn't like study anything about like where airplanes could go. Like we could, we could have talked about like the culture of Colombia if we flew there or if we flew somewhere else. Like we, we don't really like, it's supposed to be an objective, but it's an optional objective. And I think if we're really trying to teach our children Spanish, then they have, they should know where the language comes from. Mm-hmm which are the Spaniards that took over everywhere. But, you know. I guess question for you, Jocelyn, who are the majority of the parents of the students? Because um, this is my understanding. When I when I pass by or drive by those bilingual schools in the D.C. Right. area, and one of them was my oh. elementary school. I, Wait, the yeah, majority, yeah, yeah. Let's, I, hold up. Let me talk about that real quick. I used to attend the school that I work at. But, I, but it was not a bilingual school. It was not school. a bilingual school. It, it was not a bilingual school it was either. So at that time, so what, I moved to Washington, D.C. in 1998 or so. So that was my elementary school then. Majority were 
Afri- African Americans, Latinos mm-hmm. from Central America who had migrated in the nineteen or early nineteen nineties or late eighties or so, and now their kids are going to the schools, right? And it was very difficult for a kid to to be immersed or just thrown in a classroom where you have someone who cannot relate to you because i went through that oh the east the the east the esl like programs back then were dreadful yeah so at that time where i think bilingual the bilingual education was very important it was right at that time it should have started then i will say that bilingual schools don't serve directly kids and parents who actually need it Mm -hmm. or who come from like uh, low socioeconomic backgrounds mm-hmm. or parents from Central America or other countries in Latin America who want to, you know, that teach um, to make sure that their kids continue speaking Spanish, not the informal Spanish at the house level, but also to, and to promote the importance of Spanish going forward later on in their careers, adult life, right? But in this situation, I see it more of the gentrifiers mm-hmm. coming in I think they have been a big advocate uh, voice for starting this bilingual schools and mm-hmm. important because they have seen how important it is to speak another language in this country. And those who are more, I will say those who are more open-minded uh, Americans who have traveled around the world and, and has seen this importance of another language, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say that the policy has changed. Um, not because of the the needs of of those true Washingtonians, I would say that it's, it's, it's the policy has changed because of new comers in the D.C. area who are now having kids and are actually buying houses in in the area and and are starting a family and they want their kids to have this bilingual education. And I completely agree, at least when I attended um, the school that I work at, back way back when our PTA wasn't as strong if it even existed to be honest I don't recall our 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 school was gonna close down and then then this new PTA started they raised money they had money to do that they had time you know I have so (laughs) many helicopter parents and the majority no just to be honest the majority of them what all of them are gringo yeah. You know, and it's not to say that my Latino parents don't care. You know, it's they really don't have the time. I have parents who are in and out at 315 picking up their kids because they have to go to work. They don't have time for a parent teacher conference. And it's really sad. But then I have the other parents who will stay 45 minutes into my lesson just to watch. Wow. Because they're privileged and they have the time and the so the, the resources economically to sit there. Right. right. And also, I would say that. The expectations are very clearly um, told to those parents. I would say with those those who have have or come from a better socioeconomic background. Mm-hmm. I, I was reading this article recently that, and I will. I, I how do I even say this? Like I always used to say, and I'm I'm I could say I'm culpable of that. I always used to say, oh, Latino parents are not involved in the kids' life. They're not, but. But but that's not true. They are involved. They are involved in their way of 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 how they see 
um, and interpret life, their values, the culture, because their involvement, say in, in Honduras or in Nicaragua, of a parent involvement of um, there's there's kids' life in a, at the classroom level or at the school level, community level is very different mm-hmm. in compared to here, right? Where you're, you teach your kid as a parent, you teach your kid, you gotta respect your teacher. Your your teacher is like the the best of the best of the community, right? And there's also so many different cultural activities that you celebrate within the schools and that you bring parents to be involved in those activities, like celebrating Earth Day. You know, I see it as in, in Asia, I see it in Central America, celebrating the importance of uh, the moon, like, you know, full moon. Like kids learn to to learn all those different things. So the, the involvement of, of parents in developing countries or at least in Central America is, is very different. And we're always focusing, no, they're not involved. And once we stop, I mean, this this guy said, or I can't remember, it was a guy in this article said, once we stop saying that, like seeing seeing it as a negative thing, we should focus on the positive thing. And this and this is when we need to tell the policymakers, this is the focus. This is they are being involved. They are being involved, but to this extent, they just need to be clear on what the expectation is of them in at a classroom level at a DC urban school right because it's different Mm -hmm. so so that's where the gap is i would say i think it's very much evident especially in my classroom i had a lot of my students jump for middle of the year data like they grew but the ones that grew the most uh were the more privileged ones they jumped all the way to the advanced levels and and i i'm not questioning my teaching abilities i think i'm a great teacher but uh, I had to question, you know, like if they received like extra help and, and it ended up being true. They got extra tutors. They got extra time after school. And it's not even it, it goes back to just like equity. Like, you know, these kids are being given the same amount of education, but are they really being given the same opportunities or do they even have access to the same opportunities? No. And that's evident in their scores. I have like, students who speak Spanish at home who are still sco- scoring lower than the students who, who speak only English at home. It's, it's, it's 50, right? 50-50. They say you 50, you learn at school and then the other 50, you learn it at, at home. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, dif- it's difficult when you don't have that equity those resources i mean what do they say they say that if you even have a bookshelf of full of books you know just one bookshelf the this kid would be able to read much better in compared to a kid who doesn't have a bookshelf full of full of books so and and it's hard i mean and, and you walk into a lot of latino houses you don't see bookshelves you know you really don't don't see that yeah so it's it's upsetting just because the expectations are not clear. I think the the parents, Latino parents, want to be part of it, but they don't. It's not clear to them. I mean, you saying Jocelyn, they they're right there at three fifteen, right, picking up their kids. I'm sure that's very difficult because some of them are probably single single parents or working at a very low minimum wage, and yet someone is there at three fifteen picking up that kid. Yeah. So, so they want to be there, right? But that that expectation is not, it's not clear. And I think my school, you know, I've been bashing them this whole time. But I think <laughs> we do make an initiative for that. 
for example, we have um, we have replaced our formal parent-teacher conferences with group meetings. So we have all of the parents come in. We invite them. We kind of like scope them out and just like get them in um, for one meeting that's supposed to be dedicated to parent-teacher conferences all day. And we teach them a lesson that's that's accessible for them. We provide them the mark or whatever materials they need. We provide it to them so that they can take it home and practice it with them. That's amazing. Yeah. So I know that my school, like we, like that ours is coming up on Friday, and we're we were prepping materials just today, like so that they could like have a tabla de cómo se llama vol volar posicional the place value. Um, so that they could practice that at home. So we teach it to them so that they can teach it to their kids and practice so that by the end, for the next round of uh, APTT, the um, group conferences that we do, the students will be at their standard because they're practicing it both at home and at school. Interesting. I'll, I'm actually interested in your, your comment, Jocelyn, that you said about you have some students who speak fluent at home who speak Spanish fluent at home and then you have students who only speak English and those English speaking students do way better in at yeah. a bilingual school yeah. so I guess my question is when do they start when do they start learning this uh, bilingual curriculum is it at a, at the pre-k or is it until first grade it's at k it's at it's kindergarten at so um they're immersed starting so they start the school at pre-k and that's mostly learning like well how to be human how to control your emotions even though you know even as an adult now I can't control my emotions but as a child that's pre-k through three and four um I'm not too familiar with it but I know that they try to like teach manners teach you know along those lines and then k is when they start uh the nitty-gritty of bilingualism and they they start immersing the students from then it's the same model that we have where they half of the days in english half of the days in spanish my school has changed their model five times for the past five years so we're still in the process of still looking for something that works because this is my first year i may not be an expert in dual language but i can say it's not working it's not working for my kids i can see it in their growth like the only ones that are, have grown exceptionally are the ones who have had like access to outside resources. No, that's. I mean, that, I guess what I was thinking that internationally, there's this whole a uh, funding going into this whole um, mother tongue. So previously, well, I guess English around the world is seen as an opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you speak English, you will have the sky will open up to you and you would basically be on an Aladdin carpet, you know? And that's how life would be easier for you. And that's how a lot of, a lot of uh, countries interpret that. A lot of parents do. So in, in many uh, countries where you have, like, I don't know, in Ghana, I, don't, I think 14 or 18 languages, I might be wrong, where a kid is at, at this in, in the classroom there the entire curriculum is taught in english and then they go home and they they speak in in, in different um, languages or what is being spoken at home their mother tongue language right and they realize that those kids are failing right and, and why is that because 
you have to teach your kid your first the first eight years of their life in their mother tongue language. Mm-hmm. After the age of eight, the kid can learn. And once you teach a kid um, in their mother tongue language and past the past eight past um, eight, they can learn any languages. But the key is for that kid to become fluent with great quality of of education till that age. So so that brings that point to that bilingual school. You're teaching a kid at a kindergarten two languages, right? Mm-hmm. And or who is who's doing much better English speaking because they already know that that language is their mother yep. tongue, right? And they're learning Yep. Even though it's a dual language, they're still continuing to learn the other one. However, kids who are Spanish speaking and, and, and they're at home, they're not learning formally. And then they come to the classroom. And at the same time, they're also expected to learn English. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think that's where that's that's failing that model yeah. where you need to at least what I've seen in, in projects around the world that you need to teach a kid in their mother tongue language before you even try to bring another language. Yeah. Yeah. So I just have to say that. <laughs> no, no, I agree. My kids, they get confused with, I mean, las vocales, the vowels here, they're all the same. I-A-U-O-U, A-E-I-O-U, you know. They get very confused, and I think, um, and there's even some data that shows that, like, we don't see exceptional growth until after fifth grade. And my kids are in first grade. They're six, they're seven. They're still, you know, like my, my little humans. They don't know. What are some major barriers or access to education that you see for Latinos here in the in the United States working domestically and internationally? Uh, definitely going back to um, just the access to funds. I, even though my school has gradually grown with a higher like uh, Caucasian amount of students, it, it's like grown over the past few years. Um, it's still a majority like Latino Latinx populated and. I think that we've only gotten more funding every year because we're my school is considered one of the most highest like funded schools in the in not the United States in DC, but yet we still like it's still like why didn't we receive these funds when I was going there yeah. when it was just like the majority African American or majority Latinx or majority you know it it it, it ugh, like and I'm very appreciative of the PTA but. It's also like them and the reason why we were getting more funds and who's mostly on the the PTA. I, don't, <laughs> I I just I think it's it's about of funds and and access to 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 these resources and you know as, as much as I I'd like to spend time in my kids' homes like teaching them more and spending my weekends there you know I've already invested probably. Huh, more than a thousand dollars in just my classroom this year and you know is there's only so much I can give wow internationally I uh, I would say I mean it's, it's it's country by country region by region right um in the case of uh Central America um I would say security Mm -hmm. um it's, it's it's a barrier for, to, for students to, to have that access. Um, in the case in, in Honduras and El Salvador, um, many kids um, sometimes can't go to their schools because of 
gang issues, right? Um, especially looking at the youth population, which is very big in, in these three countries um, that I just mentioned. In, in some situations, a, a kid will live in one neighborhood where um, there's no, there's no um, school there, and then the other school is in another neighborhood, but the other neighborhood is, is affiliated or, or another, another gang um, owns it. That, at least that's what they say. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult. I would say security is, is an issue. Um, also, having the right teachers, meaning um, trained teachers, to make sure that they are able to teach the students who are coming from a lot of, I mean, a lot of times we talk about, we just talk, we just spent so much time talking about socioeconomic issues here in the U.S., but also in this, this countries is also an issue. And a lot of these teachers don't have the right resources, are not trained to be teaching. So how, how are you providing a an, a quality, right? A good quality of education for this students. I don't want to toot my own horn, but I've always wanted, I've always known I wanted to be a teacher. I've always seen how my upbringing was. And I mean, hey, I work at the school I used to go to and I told myself I'd be better. I'd be better for my students. I'd be better for the next gen, you know, because I didn't have that. You know, I had great teachers, you know, shout out to Ms. Brown from first grade Rudolph. But I also had really not so great teachers that kind of went into this field uh, for the money. And it, and, and it did impact me in the end because uh, Yesley and I went to, you, she attended charter school and I attended public school and, and it was a great difference in our writing when we both went to college. Um, and accepting the reality too, you know? I mean, that this, this students have been oppressed in so many different types of way already, right? right? And not only the students themselves, but it's a, it's been a, it's a cycle that it's very hard for minorities to get out, um, especially when when you're not using the right interventions of how to how to get out of that cycle. And if you don't understand that, or you can't, you could probably sympathize. But what's next? What happens to the students? Yep. What's you know they continue that cycle if you don't use the right adequate resources to contextualize the situation of what's going on in that classroom at that that kid's head at the household for god's sake you know you you gotta understand all those different factors if not it's just you know like paula friere pedagogy of the press you'll continue doing that Mm -hmm. yeah i mean come on i had on a first year i'm a first year and just seeing it i had a first year teacher fresh out of or fresh into teach for america teaching me advanced placement English. I got the short end of the stick. Like, no offense to, like, this particular teacher. He was a great person. You know, he bought me five guys once, you know. But, like, <laughs> you know, he was a great teacher, but, like, not really. 11th and 12th grade years are your years to, like, look good for college. And I, I got the short end of the stick of, of, a, of a person who has not, who had no training in, in advanced placement and and minimal training throughout DCPS. Wow. Building more bilingual schools with better models, but also adhering to... I mean, there's always better ways to do it, but just if we're so poorly educated, we're doing something wrong. And I think we're not adhering to what the students' needs are. And I, I as much as, like, I can disagree with my school about certain things, I can agree that we definitely adhere to student-centered work. 
we adhere to what they they need. We look at beginning of the year data, middle of the year data, end of year data. We use end of year data to help the next grade to say, hey, they lacked here. Here's how you can help them over the summer. And here's how you can help them beginning of the year for next year. Because seeing how it was when uh, the model was when I was in school, I can say that this model is better, but it just needs to be improved. Yeah, I will say, I mean, that model there is student-centered, which is we're, we're already a step ahead of, you know, in, in comparative um, developing countries, where it's not student-centered, it's teacher-centered, very dictatorship, I would say. So it's kind of, it's kind of difficult for, for someone like that to, to learn in such environment. And, but in the U.S., I mean, the way you're saying it, Jocelyn, where, you know, yes, you're a student, you're at the student central level, you're using that model, which is great, but um, at the same time, what you just describe is like, okay, you're evaluating the student at the beginning, at the middle, and at the, at the end, right? All those different uh, phases. But are you still using the right, right curriculum for this kid to understand the environment that he's in to come out of that that you know it's environment um i don't know if i'm making sense but it goes back to like the whole educational justice right where there's more than that there's more than that curriculum where of course it's difficult for teachers to be to come out of that curriculum where it's like okay i'm gonna teach you two plus two today right and then i'm going to evaluate you or i'm going to evaluate you before how you were before but are are those skills that you should be there's there's there are other skills that you should be teaching Mm -hmm. a kid for for later on in life for this kid to be successful and to um more of a like citizenship um having that extra time to to be a kid to have that joyful Mm -hmm. playful environment um and i would say one of i mean since we're we're discussing models at one point i will say that the i mean i'm gonna sound like a broken record with the Finnish school models where um the finland's um schools in finland the students have half day off and then the rest of the time it's just they go home and like enjoy their time and being themselves you know you learn all those social skills as to why and that that way you you start questioning why am i playing this way or why it's a lot about why why you and you questioning your own identity you know which eventually you're able to understand yourself and become more vulnerable so what does that mean later on in life later on this kid will grow to be a better person in, in, in the community. So I think that's what's lacking here in the U.S., that extracurricular social skills, being part of the community, yeah. that there's more than that. You know, it's not just at the classroom level, but it's there's more out there. It's true. We, yeah. we, I can tell you I have had so many professional developments where they just throw it down my, they throw calendars down my throat of, like, where my kids need to be at a certain time. And, you know, what? sometimes when they have, like, quote-unquote, a bad day at lunchtime, you know, or something happened, you know, I like to bring them back and not start work. I like to talk about it. I like to say, hey, what happened? What happened? What can we do to fix it? You break it, you fix it. Something happened, we fix that too. We have a discussion about it. I don't, if we get back straight into the work, it doesn't help. But who is that benefiting? Like, yeah. they, they're just going in with a bad mood and then their bad mood gets me in a bad mood and then that affects their learning. So we have, if we have to have a 30-minute conversation, we will. What upsets me is that, like, that upsets then administration because then DCPS is on their throats about where my kids need to be at. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and it's, it's not about, at the end of the day, it's not about whether I'm on track for the calendar or whether I'm on track for the schedule. It's about what my kids need. And I think even though my school, you know, they, they're doing great with, like, adhering to their needs, but I'm going to sound like a broken record. There's always room for growth. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to have some sort of, like, some sort of time of the day for that. I'm here for four-day weeks, you know? You know? <laughs> girl, Monday through Thursday, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that goes back with that, you know, that reality um, pedagogy. Basically, for a teacher to realize what who are they teaching to right who are the students who where are they coming from etc so creating spaces like this like what jocelyn just mentioned right they came back after a long day long school lunch um, and one of them was very upset so creating those spaces of um that it's okay to have that space and and just express yourself right to so you because if you don't have this time with for that student to express themselves how are you going to be able to understand where this kid is coming from and how are you going to be able to teach this kid and use the right processes the right to help um, them build social skills to build on social skills right Um, so again i'm going to back my school when i say that like they do a really good job like supporting the reality pedagogy reality pedagogy because we implement home visits at the school um and when i say home visits i do not go in there with a paper in my hand a pen in my hand i go in there and we have a conversation i introduce myself these mostly happen in the beginning of the school year to introduce myself as like hey i'm so i'm your child's teacher um i teach them this this is my co-teacher we are here um to assist you in anything you need, any questions, any concerns you have, you know, getting to know them. And it's really exciting, like, when the kid, like, gets to show you their room or, like, you know, I never had, you know, I never got had that because, you know, school and home were two different separate places, but that's the whole point of home visits, to build that bridge between home and school because those are the majority of their environments. I see these kids more than their parents see them. And I think it's, I think it's important for me to know where they're coming from. I've gotten to know, I've, these kids are like my best friends. I see them more than I see my family, you know? So like I've gotten to know why certain students act a certain way or why they react a certain way. And a lot of it has to do with home. And my job, my unofficial job, is to really teach them that like, hey, maybe that's okay in your home, but that's not okay here, which is a social environment. You are here with other kids. You are not here with your siblings. So I think, uh, I think... I think that's why sometimes they call me mommy, which is a problem because I'm only 22. <laughs> but you know, I I, I think uh, I think we we teach them more than just math and English and Spanish. We teach them how to be humans and um, and how to adjust their emotions. And I think that comes with learning how their home life is. So I think my my school does a really good job with like doing the home visits. Is there an I don't know uh, a in and whatever I don't know if you use an evaluation or anything when you do those home visits mm. where you you guys check the social economic it's status not, or what's no, the environment it's like? not it's not even like it's it's a judgment free zone and I understand why they emphasize that so much because like I I see some of my kids homes like I I did one today I did one before I came here and I I see how I see why this one particular child is is so aggressive and I I, I see it just like I was there for 
30 minutes and I saw a window of, of his life after school and, and it made me so, you know, sad. Like, you know, he has mm-hmm. a great home, you know, he has a bookshelf, he has everything, but then the way his mom just speaks to him, you know, like if he speaks, she, my thing is like, if she speaks to him in that manner when I'm there, I don't even want to know how he, she speaks to him when I'm not there, you know? Yeah. So when you see those, you know, those barriers, those factors at the at the homeschool, like you're able you're able to understand the context, right? Of, right. Of what the I'm able to situation. I'm able to one empathize with my students, understand why they act the way they act, and back to the judgment free zone. I don't I I just I don't judge their home life because you know maybe my the way mom brought us up is different from the way other people bring their children up, but. I have my own time with them to teach them to be better humans, even if it's not the same way that their parents teach them. Mm-hmm. So that understanding, that context helps you to modify build, and, build, and use the right intervention yeah, for and that build, particular and build kid. So, and definitely like build social skills, just learning how to talk to people. Like My students, they know better than to say gay. If I call in, you don't say gay at all. <laughs> no, they know better. They, we, we, <laughs> like queso, tenés hambre. Like <laughs> they know better. So, what does educational justice and equity mean to you, in your context? It's not about being fair. It's about equal access to education. So, um, I've always imagined like I've seen this one picture, this comic of like three children seeing over like a fence one's in a wheelchair um one's like too short and one's like at the right height to see over and it's like the next picture next comic next to it is like you know someone gives like the the handicapped student a lift someone gives the shorter student you know some books to stand on oh yeah I think I've seen that one yeah so it's kind of like I it's it all comes down to access to like uh, accessibility to to funds to resources to help it, it it really isn't about like fairness and like because if we gave the students the same amount of support or the equal or yeah the same amount of support it wouldn't be just because one student still wouldn't be able to look over the fence mm-hmm. but if we give the proper resources then it helps everyone mm-hmm. it helps the student who was too short it helps the handicapped student and it, it it will always help the student who like looks over, which I think is like a representation of someone who's privileged and has like those accesses anyway. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, I think you have covered almost everything. I mean, it's just making sure that that student has that particular um, student has the adequate resources to to be successful um, in in life. I would say that that's that's what equity is, right? It's not just access but understand going more above and beyond that understanding what the needs are of that student and why and not just questioning it but taking action and, and we need a lot of we need to do a lot about that there's a lot of work to be done here in the u.s and all around the world as well why do you think there's a lack of like latinx and people of color um teaching and how has being a Latinx and a woman of color helped maneuver through the spaces in which you work in? I don't know. I'm actually not sure why, because to be honest, my whole team is Latina. We're all Latinas in our 20s. Wow. Um, all four of us. 
I was kind of shocked coming into it as well. But uh, but yeah, we're all Latinas. I think teacher to anyone of any any ethnicity or race, it kind of like turns them off because of the money. They 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 immediately like. I mean, we have so many memes and so many. I mean, it's. <laughs> but I mean, in the end, it's it, it's really about drive and what and what your your passion is. And if it's not, I mean, it goes back to Teach for America. If your passion isn't into it, please don't get into this career. I wish there were more Latinx in our in our field. I know that I, growing up, I don't know about you, Yessi, I didn't see any Latin Latinas like female teachers growing up. I I didn't have that. I didn't have that. I couldn't. I can't think back and say, wow, like, I wish I was, like, Miss Rodriguez or I wish I was Miss, like, so-and-so. Um, you know, I know they existed, but, you know, my mom was a teacher, but she was a teacher in El Salvador. So I I, I don't know. I didn't, actually didn't know that until later on in life. I didn't know she was a teacher, but that's not the point. But I, I feel like that's, that's changing more. I know at one point, I mean, uh, especially, yeah, I guess we're talking about urban, urban setting, environment, um... Yeah, I didn't have any. I don't can't remember having a Latina teacher, and not even like an, a Spanish teacher. No, I don't. But I feel like now things are changing, and I just don't know why that is. But I feel like there's more more representation. Yeah. Uh, of course, education is, is, is has always been a field where there's more females, right? <laughs> so, which is surprising because I mostly had male teachers. Yeah. Growing up, yeah. Um, but I think even in my when I was in college, like most of my classes, I was either one of two Latinx women, but or mm-hmm. just the only one. But I guess the question is, um, okay, in in other schools that are not bilingual, do you see Latinas, female Latinas? No, I can't think of it. I can't. Think I of think it. it's because so here's one thing, and I think we both can relate to it is like. One of the reasons why I am in this field and I have this this career, why I, have, I keep landing jobs, I suppose, um, is because of my Spanish. So when career uh, recruiters are looking for someone, um, they don't look for for other skills that I bring to the table. They they look in particular at this that Spanish skill, right? Mm-hmm. And I will say that it. I, I mean, I yeah, I, it was the I, same situation. It was the same. T- all of my job offers when I was applying were Spanish teacher positions because there's such a great need. Because I went into this field wanting to be an English teacher or wanting to be a general educator. But you were applying but, to be um, a general educator. Yeah, and, then schools, and they would, they replied to me saying, like, hey, you speak Spanish. Like, are you interested in, like, teaching Spanish? And I didn't so consider... So you didn't apply Yeah, directly. I didn't apply, like, yeah. as a Spanish teacher. And, I, and then I didn't really think about it until I realized that all of my offers were to be a Spanish teacher. And looking back, I mean, my first job right out of college, um, which I've been in this international development field since, what, 2011? So it's been almost seven, eight years or so. And they were looking for a Spanish speaker. I didn't have any experience in international development, um, but I was coming from a small liberal arts school, privilege. Um, I'm not privileged myself, but I study there. And if you had looked at, if someone I recruited would have looked at a uh, a similar resume to mine, and, and they would erase, uh, delete uh, Yesli Contreras and delete Spanish, 
they probably would have not looked at that, right? And but because mine, like those highlighted, they just stand out like the name and the the language. But why? You know, that's not fair because at the same time, I got an education from a very prestigious college school and undergraduate and also graduate too but I feel recruiters or my career where you know I am they would never look at that they would always just focus on that that language which Um, which I'm blessed I mean you know (laughs) Spanish is my first language but why right yeah right I mean that can be that was upsetting to me at first because it was I mean I love it I felt I fell in love with teaching in Spanish but yes, yeah, so you know, I wasn't always like that in the beginning. I, I was scared. I was nervous. I was. It was something I had done all of my student teaching in English, all of my prior experience in English. This was something new for me. It's still something new for me that I'm still learning like day by day. But you're right. It kind of like wasn't fair because I didn't go into this wanting to teach, even though I did fall in love with it. I didn't go into this wanting to teach Spanish. I wanted to, to help write papers. I wanted to, to write in English. Like I'm certified in English, but all of my, my offers were in Spanish, were to be a Spanish teacher. We're, yeah, we're being oppressed. It's a system. Yeah, but I got six job offers after college, so I don't give a fuck. <laughs> That's a Cardi B say. <laughs> well, this is my first year, but I have seen um, I've seen a lot of growth in myself. Um, I'm very outspoken, but I found that in the beginning of, of this job, I, I I was very timid and scared because I, I, I was afraid to speak in Spanish. I, I was afraid to be corrected. And it is a learning, you know, experience. But I think being Latina has helped, or not like helped, but I think it's helped my relationships with parents because they come in and, and it's like home. It's like, you know, I, I, can, I can see myself you know some of these parents can like be my parents to be honest uh, but like uh, I uh, they they find a connection with me because you know we we probably do make the same meals or we probably do we probably do speak the same like lingo back home you know we, we use the same um, what are they called like garbeta like when we say like random shit like slang there we go like we probably yeah Yeah. when we use those things and they it's like I have I have great relationships with my parents because of that I think what's actually like taking me back which is another topic is my age like they don't respect me because of my age because they think I'm still a kid which I am but still I remember I was like in the beginning of uh, September when I was like in all my meetings I was just thinking to myself like damn last year I was drinking Henny straight from the bottle (laughs) now I'm in a meeting like (laughs) it's such a flip of 21 to 22 (laughs) being a Latina has has continued and is continuing to for me to, to prosper in my career specifically in this regional project that I'm working on, um, which is the LAC region, Latin America and the Caribbean. And in a lot of, um, I guess, well, international development has changed from what you saw, let's say, six, seven years ago, where a lot before the Shifa party or like the tech, all the technical team, like higher level people were um, 
U.S. Um, American um, people who will go to the country or will work with you as a team, right? In this in this project, what I'm starting to see more is that maybe international development has sort of built the capacity building of those people in those countries, where you can now hire the local people and and, and have that. Um, um, work with them, right? And in this project, um, there's a lot of great people, amazing people, I mean, who are very high level up technical people. Um, two are from Nicaragua, um, other people are from Honduras, Guatemala, uh, Haiti, etc. And like, you can just easily relate to them. I mean, <laughs> there's been several cases where we have um, conference calls online or in, in at in person and where they start saying this like dichos right Mm -hmm. um and one of them one time was um so the project director she's 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 um white um and one of them um one of the Nicaraguan a technical person was saying no yo aquí este yo hablo como el calzón quitado right Uh, so that's like blunt like straight to the point direct right and then so the project director looks at me she's like it, it, she speaks Spanish fluent, but you know there's there's those things that uh, sometimes you miss if you don't understand the culture very specific or if you're not from that region. And that was that case. And so she turns around the project director and says, "What did she say? Calzón quitado? What does that mean?" <laughs> so I had to explain. There's been other and a lot of times too where. Those high-level people, they just come directly to me because um, I think they can easily talk to me and, and able to understand the situation and compare to going directly to to someone you know who's not from the region and can be misunderstood or misunderstood or misinterpreted in so many different ways. Um, that I would say that specifically in that in that project has helped me. Thank you all for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed our episode and learned something new. We'd like to thank Jocelyn and Yesley for their time. We are so inspired by the work that you do and you've given us hope for our future. Keep slaying it out there, ladies. This episode was produced by Maria Wirtel and music is by First World. Until next time, besitos. Besitos.